And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including host Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome. I'm Tom Moore, and I'll be your host today. Thank you for joining us. Background investigations, due diligence, and competitive intelligence are useful and necessary tools to avoid surprises and to identify weaknesses and opportunities in today's global economy. Joining me today is Samantha McRoskey. Director of Research for Portman Square Group, which specializes here and abroad in complex due diligence, risk assessment, and in investigative projects in many sectors, including financial, energy, pharmaceuticals, and retail, as well as high net worth inv- individuals. Samantha's work has spanned Latin America, Europe, Africa, and Asia. She is multilingual and studied as a Fulbright Scholar after getting degrees from the University of Notre Dame and Yale. Samantha, welcome to The Mentors Radio. I'm excited to have you as my guest and to learn more about investigations, particularly background investigations. We have so much to talk about, so let's get started. And why don't you tell us a little bit more about Portman and the work that you do there? Yes, thank you so much for having me on, Tom. Um, So uh, we have, at Portman Square Group, we have two main practices. We have our due diligence practice and our, our investigative practice. Um, and, and you could basically divide them um, in a simple way as people come, the due diligence side would be people coming to you before they get into a business relationship, whether it's hiring someone or investing in something. And then the investigative side is when people come to you after they've been in a relationship with a business relationship and typically when something has gone awry um, so they'll come to you for that type of work Um, so those are the two different types of work i um, am the head of research at portman square group and so i i would say i typically work on due diligence projects but i've also worked on a wide variety of investigative work as well and uh, I understand the majority of the searches are outside the United States? I would say a good portion of the work we do. There are other firms in our industry that focus you know, solely in the United States or in specialize regionally. Um, but we, have, we do work on every continent. I've done projects in dozens of countries that I've kind of lost track, um, but both with client, US clients either investing or working with people abroad and then vice versa, uh, international clients who want to to, um, invest or hire or otherwise do business here in the US. So it it goes both ways, but we do do a a good deal of work for US clients doing work abroad. I would say that's the majority. And you're multilingual, right? Yes, I speak Spanish um, and Portuguese. And uh, I've dabbled in other languages, but nothing nothing uh, really to, to speak of. But yes, that's how I got my job actually originally was 
Um, I didn't even know this was an industry when I had come out of grad school. I was looking for a job and um, Portman Square Group needed somebody who specifically somebody who spoke Portuguese because they were trying to serve a lot of clients who were investing in Brazil at the time. So that's how I got my job. And you spent a little time down in Brazil too, didn't you? I did. When I was in graduate school studying a master's in international relations, I knew I knew going into it that um, I wanted to have a regional focus in Latin America, but I I really have always loved languages and I already had spent some time living in Mexico. I spoke Spanish fluently, um, but I knew I had wanted to sort of round out my knowledge of that region and learn Portuguese and learn um, you know, about Brazilian life, culture, business. So I did work down in Sao Paulo for a few months in between my two years in graduate school. I worked at a, it was really interesting. I worked at a company that served um, like middle to um, upper market entrepreneurs in Brazil. So like people doing really high impact businesses. So that was really great. And uh, your Fulbright, your full, where did your Fulbright scholarship took you to Mexico? Mexico. Yep, Mexico. Yes, I lived in Mexico City and I was doing some anthropological type work um, in another state of Mexico, Puebla, in, in a sort of rural area. And then I was also taking some graduate school, um, grad school classes there at um, UNAM, which is like the largest public university in Mexico. I think it has like 100,000 students. Wow. It was, yeah, it was huge, <laughs> but it was a great experience. And uh, for my audience, mm -hmm. remind them, what is a Fulbright scholarship? Who is, what is a Fulbright scholar? Yeah, so a, the Fulbright program is pretty amazing. It's been, I, I wish I had all of my facts up to date, but it's been around for decades. Um, I believe it came out of one of the, of the it, I believe it was after the Second World War or something around that time where um, the government felt that cultural exchange was really going to be important to avoiding conflicts. And so they developed this program where we would send um, U.S. students abroad to, to study and learn. Um, and it would be sort of a cultural exchange. So they have a couple different types of scholarships. They have um, research and study, which is what I did. And they also have um, teaching scholarships where you can go and teach English in other countries. So they have those two. I was on a research and study grant to Mexico, but you can you have to apply by country. So I had to apply to the country of Mexico. Um, and it was really wonderful. It was, it was al almost a year there and um, it's a wonderful program. Great. and. And when I look at the cast of characters that you work with at Portman, I feel like I'm with the National Security Agency. I, <laughs> I, I maybe you could tell us a little bit about the leadership. But your yep. chairman, founder, was with the CIA. You had other people with Scotland Yard. Just yes. briefly, give us an overview of the talent that you have yeah. and the people that you're learning from. Yeah. So our this industry is kind of, I would say it's known for. Um, You'll find a lot of competitor firms to ours that have like the whole staff is like former FBI, former CIA types. And Mike Baker spent many years in, who's our founder, um, in the CIA. He worked in many countries um, as a field, like an ops guy. Um, he has, 
I mean, really, you want more stories, you could go. He's actually on television quite a bit. Um, So maybe some of your listeners have seen him. Um, And then a few other of our colleagues have experience in, um, I believe, Alan has worked um, in some sort of like UK equivalent um, government and or like, I don't know if it was CIA, like external facing or internal, like the FBI. Um, And we have a lot of that type of, not a lot, but a few guys who have done that. But we also have, um, it's just very interesting. A lot of our staff has regional expertise and language. Um, I I can't, I've lost track of how many languages we have in house, but quite a few Um, people. We we have several um, international citizens as our employees. Um, I would say we're probably half and half, only half US citizens and half of our employees are from abroad from other countries. So we really bring from professional to, um, you know, country of origin, and then what people have studied, we have a really big breadth of, of people that work with us, which is great. And from that group of experts, what's the, if you could nail one thing, what is the one big thing that you've learned from them? Uh, it's never quite be satisfied with what you see at first. It's it's always dig deeper. And I would say going that extra, you know, never quite being comfortable with what you get on the first go round of anything, whether it's a conversation or you're doing research. Um, It's always that drive to go a little bit farther, a little bit deeper um, in your research. It's, it's It's a drive of curiosity. And I would say I get that from my colleagues. They're never quite content with what is right on the surface. Well, that's great. We're gonna come back. We're gonna talk more about background checks and what you bring to the table and how they're done. We're with Samantha McCroskey, Director of Research for the Portman Square Group. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com, and click on the list of shows to listen to past shows. Subscribe while you're there so you don't miss any future shows. This is Tom Laurie, and you are listening to The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and I'm with Samantha McCroskey, Director of Research for the Portman Square Group. And we're talking about the ins and outs of background checks, due diligence, competitive intelligence in today's global economy. Remember, you can also listen to this show or any previous show via podcast on iTunes, TuneIn, Spotify, Google, and more on any device at any time. Subscribe at thementorsradio.com. So now let's turn our attention to background checks and the work that you do specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, What are you responsible for? So I'm responsible for everything from your pre-employment background checks. So that would be somebody coming to us, um, typically wanting to make a higher level hire, um, saying, hey, can you please perform a background check on this person um, to uh, pre-investment due diligence, which is a similar process, just different end goal, which would be to invest in a company. Um, so you're looking usually in that case at the top management as well as the entity that you that the, our clients would be transacting with. Um, so those are, I would say those are the two most common things that I'm responsible for carrying out for our clients um, and then kind of uh, delegating to our staff to get that work done. So going back to uh, doing some of my own uh, due diligence on what you do and everything, it noted that you uh, 
when you're looking at things, you look at activist groups, insights to those people that are politically exposed, suspicious transactions, uh, reputations and ethics of people. Yes. And I'm sure there's a lot more, but those and social media, social media presence. Yep. So a typical... So a typical background check would do the following. It would it would confirm, usually up front, we like to confirm people's, um, you know, we call them like biographical details. That would include like your a person's uh, full name, um, date of birth, uh, residential address, um, just those sorts of details. We'll have a brief like profile on that. Um, and then you know, will usually verify their employment and education history, which as you know, I think everyone who's listening has probably at least read of, if not knows personally of an example of someone uh, who's, <laughs> who, or they've, you know, some story that they've heard of somebody finding out that somebody's degree was not really what, where they went, or they didn't actually work at this company. So the it really is important to do those things. So we will verify all of that information for our clients. Um, and then we'll also do what's called a public profile, which means we basically do a sweep of the public domain, you know, the press, um, online forums, um, and then all the social media stuff, blogs, all the platforms, all this, you know, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, you know, that's just to name a few, we'll do a sweep of all of those. Um, and we both um, utilize databases that help us do sweeping searches of those types of platforms, as well as um, do our own manual research, especially when we find something. We, we never quite, like I said, never quite take like, oh, I see this hit came up in a database. We have to dig into that further. So we'll do things like that on our own. Um, we also do full legal reviews. So we'll look into the litigation history of people and businesses, um, right down to the county level. Um, And then of course, regulatory research, sanctions research, um, and et cetera. We also do corporate affiliations. We like to be able to tell our clients, well, what other business interests do these people have other than their day job? You know, or do they sit on boards? Do they, are they shareholders in other companies? So we try to create a comprehensive picture of the person that our clients want to work with or hire. Just tuned in. This is Tom Lawyer. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show. We are with business intelligence expert, Samantha McGrasky. <clears throat> so what are the unique skills that you bring to this job? Well, I would say there's the hard skills like my language experience, um, you know, and I can tell you, I could make a list for you of all the databases that I know how to manipulate and use. But really, I would say it's the um, softer skills that I bring that make a person successful in my job, which would be um, just a natural curiosity. Um, You know, never, uh, so nonlinear thinking, that's another one. It's being able to, to look at one source or resource and then being able to figure out how to connect what the information you got from that to something else. So being able, an example would be, I've looked at a um, at a corporate database and I see all of these companies that are affiliated with the person's name that I'm looking at. Okay, 
then I need to be able to think in a creative way about if I'm looking for something else about this person, or if I was given a tip by my client, I'm concerned about this. I need to be able to say, hmm, I'm going to look at all of these entities and then I'm going to see who worked with them um, so that I can get a sense of who my this person works with or where they've been or what types of patterns I notice. So I'd say nonlinear thinking, creativity and a curiosity, and then writing. Writing, good writing is essential uh, to what we do because we are trying to present a story, um, not a, a, not a made up story, a very true story, but a story that reads really well and concisely to our clients. And uh, listening is a big part of this, isn't it? Yes, it's huge. Listening and having an innate interest in people. Um, a lot of the work that we do is not just uh, desktop research, it's human intelligence. It's a, That's a core of what we do. Um, I think another interesting thing about our industry is that, you know, and especially this is a very um, en vogue thing right now, artificial intelligence, you know, what can, what can be done on computers alone? And there's a lot. Um, however, I think in certain instances, and I've certainly seen it, there's no substitute for talking to people. Um, and that's how we still, how we get a lot of uh, really valuable information. Um, so listening, having an, uh, you know, a real genuine interest in others it helps you converse with people successfully. And how much time do you spend in meetings on the phone and on the computer? If you were to look at that. It's a good question. I would say all of my work, there's no set way. You know, we don't dictate to our employees, like you must start with this first. We do have checklists that need to be gone through as you know, like these are the things you need to hit when you're doing a project. And those will often lead you to other databases or resources, but you should start. I like to start and get a backgrounder. Like I start with my desktop research. So that probably takes at least a third of the time. I would say a third, a third, a third. So then the other third would be spent looking for, and if I'm doing a human, human source intelligence uh, project that involves that, a third of the time would be spent identifying the right people to reach out to and then speaking with them. So that takes a good amount of time. And then I would say that last third is devoted to writing and organizing a report. Well, I think we're going to come back and talk some more about this interesting subject. If you, uh, so we're going to be back just in a second. We're with Samantha McCroskey, Director of Research for the Portman Square Group. This is Tom Laurie, and this is the Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie. I'm with Samantha McCroskey, Director of Research for the Portman Square Group. We're talking about the ins and outs of background checks, due diligence, competitive intelligence, and today's global economy. So when we uh, finished last, you were telling us a little bit about the, your day and how you spend your time. What What is it that, um, I mean, what I, what I know about you is you were shy as a child. So you're doing all of this outward facing work. Tell us a little bit about the transition from being shy to being ex more externally focused. Yeah, my mom always likes to tell a story. I, this, I was way too old for this to be happening, but I was about in fifth grade and I had my little my little third grade sister order an ice cream cone for me because I, could, I couldn't look the person in the eye and ask them. 
for it. And really the turning point was working in my family's business. Um, they uh, own a retail store that's operating to this day. It was started by my great grandfather. Um, and I remember the day I turned 14, my dad was like, you're getting your working papers uh, and I'm gonna have you in on the weekends and after school and as much as you can be here. So I really, at the beginning, I dreaded it. I, I would get like cold sweats. I would stand in the store and just hope that no customers asked me for anything. <laughs> Um, and then I, you know, I was told by my dad, my uncle, you know, you need to approach the customer and you need to ask them, you know, greet them and ask them if they need help with anything. So I gradually, um, you know, not without a lot of, of awkwardness and pain, got used to that. Um, and that took away a lot of it for me. And then, uh, you know, ever since I've been able to, to interact very comfortably with people most of the time. So one of the keys in your job is getting people to say things. I mean, mm -hmm. this is that's a trick, getting people to say things, particularly when they know that you're doing a background check on somebody. So what, do you, what are the little tips that you would have for all of us on how we can yeah. get people to say things? Yeah, so it's interesting you ask, ask that because it, it, when you frame it that way, it, it's it's not really a trick so much as it is what I said before, which is having a genuine interest in people. Like my husband will always be astonished at what information I'll get just from his siblings. And he'll say, well, I just talked to him about that last week and I didn't hear that. It's if you have a genuine interest in others and learning about their life, they will open up to you. And so it has to be genuine. It can't be fake because people can sense when you're trying to get at something. And so I really always go into a conversation and they're all cold calls. They're not people I know um, with, look, um, I'm calling you for this reason to talk about this person or to ask you about this colleague who you worked with previously. But in order to do that, I need to know the context of the person I'm speaking with. You know, what was the position that they held at the time? What has been their career? So I always start off with broad questions, which typically get that person to tell me a bit about themselves. Um, and and everybody uh, feels much more at ease when they're asked to give a few words or talk a bit about themselves and they know that the person listening to them is genuinely interested in understanding what they do and the context um, of, of their work. So that is that's really key is getting context from people asking them what position they held, what's the nature of their work, who do they interact with on a daily basis? Because then you can really understand the perspective that they had on the person you're calling about. You know, is this someone that they saw daily or that they would just see in the hallway every once in a while or that they saw at the water cooler? Or is this someone like, I went to lunch with this guy every day um, and we would always talk on the way there. So you really need to start with those broad questions and then focus in. And it's also, um, it's very much an art, just like it would be with any conversation. You can tell, um, you have to be sensitive to when you're not gonna get somewhere with somebody. Um, and you have to also know how to pivot very easily. Um, so if someone is, if you wanted to ask it about a specific thing and you sort of start down a line of, of inquiry and you can tell the person's shutting down, um, you know, who are, we always say, try to keep them on the phone as just, just try to keep them on the phone. And chances are, if you keep someone on the phone, 
you'll get somewhere. It may not be where you thought you would go, but you'll get somewhere. But if you get a click, then it's all over. So it's just keeping them engaged, asking different questions and knowing when to change it up. If you just tuned in, this is Tom Lawyer. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show. We are with business intelligence expert, Samantha McCrossfield. Uh, the, um, you noted that you're never really remembered in a job as you think you were. <laughs> Could you it's just true. come in? That's an important yeah. lesson that people ought to learn. Yeah, I think people, and I look, I don't want to diminish the work that we do, all of us on a daily basis, you know, that spreadsheet that we handed in or the report that we completed. But I, and I don't want this to sound hokey either, but I've, I've just heard it enough times. It's, you're not really remembered for your work or that one report you did that one time, or, you know, oh, she always got her expenses done on time. You're really remembered for how you treat people um, and, and the type of, um, and how people felt when they interacted with you. So often that ties in with work. People will say, you know, I don't really, you know, I don't really care where it is, but if I had the opportunity, opportunity to work with so-and-so again, I would do it in a heartbeat. It's like, it's, it's almost goes back to the adage. You, you hire the person, not the skills. I mean, skills are important to a certain extent. Um, and there are certain jobs that require very specific ones. You know, you can't drive a forklift or a, a heavy machinery if you don't know how. But um, if you just know a person who is is really great to interact with um, and you feel that they bring energy and focus to what they're doing, nine times out of 10, that's the person people will want to have work with them. And that's what they remember. So, Samantha, how long does it take to do a background check? Uh, if it's the CEO of a fortune 500 company that will typically take closer to the seven business days. Um, there's just a lot more to sift through, um, in terms of public profile, all that other stuff, litigation, possibly because people with a higher profile, usually you, you might see a bit more of that. Um, but I would say that time frame, it, five to seven business days is our typical, um, you know, we try to work with clients so that there will be the occasional or maybe not so occasional rush, <laughs> you know, I need this done in a hurry. Um, so we try to accommodate, but what we don't ever do is um, work quickly to the point where we feel like we're, we could miss something because this is important, you know, there can be high stakes. And what would be the uh, charge for uh, a background check? What is the range? Yep. So our, in our industry, it definitely ranges. And I would say the things that affect range are, again, profile the person, geographic location, et cetera. But um, something done in the U.S. can range from like the low uh, four figures, uh, you know, a, a few thousand dollars to upward, like it, it could go up, um, you know, high up into that range, depending, you know, seven, eight thousand dollars. It depends on the profile of the person greatly. And it depends what level they're being hired into. It also depends if there are international jurisdictions. A lot of high level executives, as an example, have worked abroad. They've had careers that expand, you know, have expanded all over the world. So we, when we have to look in multiple jurisdictions, that price will go up. Um, so that's, it's, it's not a satisfying answer, but it depends on kind of the nature of the level of the person um, and where. So when we come back, let's talk a little bit about some of the unusual things you've <laughs> learned 
the, the big surprises. This is Tom Lauren with Samantha McGrosky, Director of Research for the Portman Square Group. We're talking about the ins and outs of background checks, due diligence, competitive intelligence in today's global economy. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. I'm with Samantha McCraskey, who is the Director of Research for the Portman Square Group. So what stories do you have to share about all of these? I mean, you've been doing it for 10 years. I'm sure you've got some great stories. Why don't you give us a... Okay, give us a few highlights. I have a lot. Okay. <laughs> um, actually, so it's funny now that it, since I'm in Southern California, a, a particular one came to mind because it it happened around here and around the beginning of when I started my job. So this is one of the first things I did. I was like, whoa. <laughs> um, and so one of our clients at the time, a financial institution, um, an investment firm came to us and they said, uh, we got something weird going on here. Somebody sent us, uh, you know, a, an email that they had come across. And there was a, a person who at the time lived uh, in Southern California here and was working with two other individuals, um, a woman and two men. And she had, they had taken the logo of our uh, investment firm client and where basically, um, portraying themselves as members of this prominent uh, family who is associated with the investment firm. And they were peddling really strange investment schemes to people. One was like vodka, um, like a a vodka that they were manufacturing. The other was diamonds, um, like a diamond mine. And they were soliciting money from people uh, using this name and logo. And they they had all kinds of things drawn up. They had term sheets and... um, letters on letterhead and we did get our hands on some of it because you know it was being circulated around via email so we were basically asked to investigate what was going on here and that was it was definitely interesting and and actually uh the the people were apprehended by the authorities so it was a good ending for our client but it was certainly a colorful cast of characters you know right from the right off the bat for me when i started so it had a lot to do with the reputation of the family very it did. Yeah, so there, yeah. there were high stakes and these people were, uh, you know, taking money from people unbeknownst to them. They thought they were connected. So we really I think we helped them dodge some bullets there. So that was really it, it was a good ending, but it was interesting. So what are some of the big red, red flags that you've found when doing a background check? So some of the red flags have come, you know, really interesting ones for me have been uh, the ones that come from conversations where, you know, a person looks great on paper. Um, and then you talk with people and you're like, Oh, I've clearly, this would never have shown up. Um, and one example would be some, uh, a background check we did recently, or not that recently, a couple of years ago, uh, for a client who came to us and this was a, a leader, a person in a very high leadership position. And in one of this, this was a, our client was the owner of this company and his, uh, person in very, very upper management position. He he had a few things that occurred that had sort of made him feel like mm, maybe something wasn't right with this person. And he came to us saying, look, I actually never did a background check when I hired this person. So I think it's appropriate to do this anyway. Could you please perform a background check on this person? So we did. And, you know, we went through all of the normal things that I mentioned earlier, all the databases, all the open source information, 
nothing big turned up. But, uh, you know, this was an enhanced due diligence uh, background check. So we were um, tasked with reaching out to people. We spoke with some people who had worked with this person in the past. And it took a few calls. But once we uh, we got to one person who described all sorts of really not good things <laughs> that this person had done from, you know, embezzling funds to threatening uh, the owners of another company that he had worked with to um, some other things, you know, that just weren't great. Um, and th the thing with that, though, is you always have to corroborate. So you really have to try to get if, you know, we always say if one person says something, even if two people say things, you really have to try to get at least three people to say the same or similar things to know that you're working with truth. Um, so then that's what we did. And, and ultimately, we were able to go back to our client and, you know, present them with this information. And it made our client feel much more secure when, uh, you know, when unfortunately when firing this person. What you're talking about in terms of corroboration, it's very much what the press should be doing with regards to sources for news stories. And we've been seeing quite a bit of anonymous sources and no corroboration leading yep. to a lot of uh, disinformation. It seems like the same thing. So now does your job require any travel? Uh, it's situational. So uh, definitely less so than I would say pre uh, the 2008 financial crisis. Um, you know, when budgets were cut um, and then also at the same time, um, I would say internet research uh, capabilities were growing exponentially during that time. You know, we've got uh, better databases, better tools at our disposal. So I would say it, it it slowed down a bit, like the necessity, um, but it's definitely still done when needed, when you need to, uh, when the when the situation and the project requires it, when we need to be able to um, go look at a site for a client and report on its security or a whole bunch of other things when we need to perform surveillance on a, a place or a person. Um, so it's definitely is required. It, I would say it's not it's not as necessary, um, and that's because we've replaced it with really strong tools in other areas. But yes, it's still done. You just tuned in. This is Tom Lawyer. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show. We're with business intelligence expert Samantha McCroskey. Now, you've got five kids. It seems like you got a lot going on. Yep. And travel <laughs> and everything else. So, how do you unplug? So I like, you know, I don't know if I would call it unplug, but travel is, uh, whether it's for work or for family life, travel is definitely a part of life. Um, I'm here in California right now, and my uh, husband is from out here. But so we, so we come out here at least once a year. Um, but there could be a lot worse places to travel to. So it's we love it. We really embrace traveling with our kids. Um, in fact, during the pandemic, we couldn't make our yearly plane flight out here. So we decided to drive across the country. And I will say, I don't know that I, it was unplugging. Well, it was unplugging in a way, actually. Um, but it was very energizing to do a different mode of travel and to just have family time. I would say that's how, how I unplug. And over the course of the 10 years you've been doing this work, uh, what have you learned about people? So I think overwhelmingly, I have been so heartened to learn and to to have it reinforced because I think I always believed, wanted to believe in the goodness of people. But I think I really learned that. Um, I've had many, many more conversations with people that have been 
positive and uplifting than negative. Now, I've certainly the negative ones, you know, it's negativity bias. Those stand out more. So they make for the really interesting and um, stories. But overwhelmingly, um, my conversations um, and the information I've gathered has been uh, either neutral or positive. So I think he's definitely reinforced um, that there are, are really are good people out there. How has the business changed over the course of your work at uh, Portman? It's a really good question. Um, I would say, you know, as I alluded to earlier, we definitely have more tools, uh, more online tools available to us uh, than ever before. You know, different databases and subscriptions that allow us to do our work better. But I would call those sort of um, things that we dialogue with. So we never rely solely on a on a database or, you know, desktop research, although those tools have improved vastly, which has really helped us. It's probably helped our efficiency a great deal. But we're constantly having to dialogue those sources with our human source intelligence and our own abilities to synthesize information and decide, well, okay, what is important um, out of what I've learned from, from online resources? So, you know, online research tools, desktop research tools have greatly improved over the years, which has been a boon to us. Uh, but it's also been a process in terms of how do I interlock that with my, my own skills as an analyst. So now with you raising all these children and you're doing background checks, what would you tell your children if they were in their 20s about things not to do? <laughs> not to do. Well, <laughs> just treat treat people. Well, this is a what to do, but treat people with respect. People truly do remember when they've been wronged, when they've been treated poorly by others. And it's um, I would just tell them, you know, really be mindful of how you treat people, even down to the smallest interaction. If it's a clerk in a store, if it's a waiter or waitress in a restaurant, you know, those interactions really stay with people. Those are the things that people tell me on the phone, you know, I, how people made them feel. So I would, I would certainly, and I think I do that anyway, not just because I do the job that I do, but I would more so emphasize, you know, when somebody does some wrongs you in, in that sort of way, it does stick with you. Um, I would also, <laughs> I would, you know, tell them, obviously just ethical behavior um, in everything they do. And hopefully that's innate from how we're raising our kids, but um, honesty. And when you make a mistake, uh, owning up to it. That's um, honestly, that's half the battle. When people have to, are not humble enough to admit to their mistakes, that's usually when all sorts of like covering up happens. So having the humility to admit your mistakes. And those people that might be interested in looking for somebody to do background checks or investigative work, what, what would you tell them when they're looking for an intelligence service? What should they look for? Um, I think that they should definitely ask about the process. That's really important because not all background checks are created equal. We'll often have people come to us and say, oh, you know, I'm looking for a background check on a person. I've talked to a, a, another firm and, you know, they could offer it to me for $500 and have all the things that you said that you would do. 
And so why is yours more expensive? And so you have to really ask about what sources or the process and the approach, because anyone who tells you, I always tell people, anyone who make, gives you the impression that there's like a button you press and it says background check on it and you press it online and then it's all done. It's just, it's not true and it's not real. It's it's, it's gathering, aggregating information from many, many, many sources um, and then pulling that all together to create the, the report. Um, so it's really, it's, it is time intensive and labor intensive. Even with legal records, they're not all in one place. You have to search many databases and even search some counties by hand still, believe it or not, in the United States, you can, you do have to do that in certain locations. So I would ask, I would tell people to ask about the process, how they go about gathering information and what's included in a report. Now we're going to be right back with Samantha McCraskey, Director of Research for the Portman Square Group. This is Tom Laurie, and this is the Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. This is the last segment. A couple of fire, firing uh, line questions. Number one, what is it that your parents told you? The one thing that they told you while you were growing up that stuck with you? <laughs> I don't know why, but at this moment, the one that's jumping out at me is, Sam, you have to make this decision for yourself. I think there was a period of time when I would go to them like, what should I do? You know, what? I don't know how to make this decision. And it was just, it was just eating at me. And I remember my mom and my dad at various points, like, sorry, Sam, you got to make this decision on your own. And at the time I was like, Ugh. felt like abandoned, but I know now that my parents, like you, you must be able to make decisions and, and sometimes make them, uh, you know, rather quickly. You don't necessarily have days. Um, so I know that they were trying to get me to be independent in decision-making. And was sure. did they say that a lot or was there one time in particular that really, uh, it came home? Uh, I think when like deciding on a college for sure. Cause I had gotten into one school that gave me a significant scholarship, but then I got into, uh, the place where I ended up going and I had no money and like no offer. And I knew it would cost them more money. Um, and I was like, I just don't know what to do. I don't know what, where to go. I don't know what to do. And my mom was like, sorry, Sam, I'm not going to make this decision for you. My mom and dad. Said. We're going to have to run. We've run out of time, but I want to thank you for your yes. time. Thank We've been you, with Tom. business intelligence expert, Samantha McCroskey, director of research for the Portman Square Group. If you missed any of this show, go to thementorsradio.com. Listen to our podcast anytime on any platform. When you're there, subscribe to future shows. Join us next week at the same time for the next edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Tom Laurie signing off for today. Remember to be all you can be and keep the candle lit for all who struggle in the darkness. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.